and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a brand new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Hi, I'm Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos. Thanks so much for being here today. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, Maxine, today you interviewed Dr. Carmen Celestini about conspiracy theories. Can you tell us a little bit about this interview? Yeah, sure. It was so fascinating. Carmen's work is so broad in terms of covering societies or organizations that are your sort of, if I would say, classic um, conspiracy theories. So things like Freemasons and some neo-Nazi organizations, which are really associated with doomsday prophecies. But she also, in her work, covers organizations that aren't necessarily the first things that come to mind. So looking at John Birch Society and the Skull and Bone Societies within uh, universities. So we spoke a lot about how across time, across her work, history has sort of repeated itself in terms of the function of conspiracy theory, as well as who is attracted to these conspiracies and, and what the narratives are. So we saw really this huge case of history repeating itself. We focused a lot on QAnon, obviously, being the big one of the moment. And what was really interesting is Common had this amazing insight into why people join conspiracies, you know, why they attach to those. And it was a lot of conversation about, you know, mistrust of authority, sort of disenfranchisement. And, you know, what I loved about chatting to her was it was kind of understanding that folk who are interested in conspiracies are not just the tinfoil hat wearing, you know, whatever the kind of stereotype that you think of. It was this real humanizing thing of going, actually, this is really fascinating. Let's look at why people have these beliefs um, and what these beliefs do for them psychologically, which of course is fascinating and really appropriate to all of us. And finally, you know, we sort of just ended by speaking about what happens now. You know, the big QAnon predictions were they haven't happened. Okay, it's come, it's gone, and it hasn't happened. So so what now? What, what happens to people's meaning systems when they believe in something so much and it doesn't occur? So Carmen explained that sort of some of the ways looking forward of how these societies are reimagining themselves and what direction they're going in. Well, that sounds really fascinating. And I think that this is super relevant, not only given the sort of current socio-political climate uh, in many parts of the world, but these are conversations that are happening in our classrooms too with students. This is all very much on everybody's minds. And so I can't wait to see what she has to say. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Dr. Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos. And today I'm joined by Dr. Carmen Celestini, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Center of Hate, Bias and Extremism. She's also a sessional lecturer at the University of Waterloo. Carmen, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. So your work broadly is looking at conspiracy theories. And for those who might not know, how would you define a conspiracy theory? A conspiracy theory is usually um, some articulation of fear and trying to find an answer to what's causing the fear or causing sustained sense of disaster. So it's an explanation when some of the things that you would normally turn to aren't providing the answers you're looking for. 
Brilliant. That was very succinct. I'm sure that's not something that's very easy to define so quickly. But, um, you know, you were speaking about that sort of that the fear when something like that is happening and, and your current meaning systems may be on answering that. And there's a lot of evidence of that currently. But in thinking about how broad your work is, I wanted to maybe go back sort of chronologically, I suppose, and think about your work with um, the anti-Masonic party in the mid 1800s. Could you tell us a little bit about what that party was and, and how they used conspiracies? Well, back, um, so the Freemasons are linked to the Illuminati. So, um, in 1776, um, the Illuminati rose and there was a lot of secrecy about that group and it was linked to being attached to the French Revolution. And, um, one of the ideas was that the Freemasons were linked to this. So John Robinson had written a book in, I believe, 1778 or 79, and it arrived in North America. And a lot of people were looking at what was happening in the Freemasons. And, you know, it is somewhat a Christian group, but it also has an air of secrecy and it's a secret membership. And, the idea was is that many of the people who are members of the Freemason were also important people and prestigious people in communities, in politics, in sales, um, in corporations. And so it was determined that one of the things that the Freemasons and the Illuminati wants to do is destroy religion. And so it was an articulation of that. And if we think about in the 1800s, I mean, there was a lot of social things that were happening in society that, you know, people were nervous about. And, you know, there was fears, there was anti-Catholic Catholicism that was happening. People were afraid of new things and different things and felt that it was an encroachment upon their faith base or an encroachment on their politics. And at that point in time, you know, America, you know, was rising up and changing and, you know, to respond to that, they had to find out what the fear, what was causing some of the distrust in society, what was causing some of their questions. And so when you see a group of people who are consistently in powerful positions, you think that they might be trying to control something and create a new world order, which is very consistent in many conspiracy theories. And so people for a conspiracy theory to take hold, there has to be distrust of the institutions in society and there has to be distrust in the media. And, you know, those those ideas that you think that someone's not being completely transparent or that perhaps the government body isn't serving your best interest. They're solving they're serving their own self-interest. And so the anti-Masonic Party started off um, as a religious group um, in churches talking about you know, how do we stop the Freemasons? But there was a realization that, you know, doing it from the church with the separation of church and state wasn't going to actually have an impact. So the way to make an impact was to join the political party itself. And so eventually the anti-Mason party became the know-nothings in America. And so, I mean, this is a continuous trope where, you know, many people sort of dismiss conspiracy theorists, you know, like we, I I personally have been in a room and someone has been telling me their conspiracy theory and it makes sense up to a certain point. And then all of a sudden there's a fork in the road and you're like, what? <laughs> okay, let's go back and, you know, how did we get to that mm-hmm. spot? And so, you know, when you think about even in scholarship in some cases, 
Um, when we look at political parties or social movements that are happening that are, you know, covered with the conspiracy theory, people think, well, you know, they're just wearing tin hats, you know, that we can't take them mm. seriously. They're on the fringes of society. But I think that this continuous dismissal, we can see with the anti-Masonic party that, you know, they didn't have much impact, but the know-nothings did in the American political system. So, you know, we can see it even now. I mean, if we look at, you know, everyone sort of looks at the QAnon shaman and they joke about that. But what was the impact of those conspiracy theories and the social movement that it created? So when we think about these ideas of secretness and distrust in institutions, we have to look past the salacious nature and actually look at what they're fearing. So what was the thing that started this? Like, you know, there was, you know, confusion in society, confusion in politics, confusion, what was happening. And so how do we answer that? There's a power that wants to control these things outside of us. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on there. First is, you know, just this idea, exactly as you said, of of not just dismissing these beliefs as, oh, these people are, like you said, tin wearing tin foil hats. You know, mm-hmm. it's rather thinking about actually, it is a sort of product of the times, right? Like we are living in times where there is that exactly that criteria that you were talking about, that distrust of institutions, fear. You know, of course, with the situation, there's so much more fear now, fear of mortality, fear of illness mm-hmm. than, you know, has been for a really long time. So it's not surprising that these um, conspiracies are, are, are rising up and especially like that you spoke about, you know, the logic to it, you know, mm-hmm. because we were talking a little bit before the recording, you know, I have friends that are are into QAnon and things like that. And these are logical, intelligent people, you know, so there is that logic to it. But I wonder if you can kind of explain a little bit, you know, where do you think that fork in the road comes from? Where, what do you think makes someone go from, yes, this is logical to, hmm, hold on, there's some, there's a jump. Yeah, I think that, um, especially now. So putting it in the context of what's happening with COVID. First of all, we have people who, I mean, we've talked about being in isolation. So your social group is on the internet. This is how we interact is via video with our friends. And there isn't, you know, if you're online and you're in a forum or you're in a group or you're on Telegram, that group is there 24 hours a day. So like at three o'clock in the morning, you can pop on and have a conversation. And so what we find with conspiracy theorists is that the way they approach things is almost scholarly. So they will, you know, here are my reference points, here are this, you know, all the points to get me to where I'm going. And they do have a really good understanding of history. Mm-hmm. And it, what happens is, is that, you know, they put these points together that comes to a conclusion. With COVID right now, what we see is that people are, you know, they're aware that there's a virus is happening, that we're in a pandemic. But, you know, we're locked in our houses. A lot of people are facing financial insecurity, um, especially in America. I mean, I know in Canada, we have benefits that our government has given almost like universal income. But that's not something that's happening necessarily in other countries. And so people are feeling like, I've lost my job. I don't know when this is going to end. I'm having financial insecurity. My friends are nowhere near me. I'm isolated in my home. And they start engaging online. And there's already a sense of distrust 
in the government systems. I mean, every government, you know, people can point out where they distrust them or where they feel that they're not actually speaking for them or what they believe in. And, you know, there's so much in the media right now where it's like we distrust mainstream media. You know, you're a sheep if you, you know, read the Washington Post. <laughs> and so, you know, they start seeking other things. So you might be in a conversation with someone and, you know, the universal language of religion plays an important role. You know, you might see someone say something about a conspiracy theory and then end it with a song or talk about how God is involved in this. And there's also a lot of notions of apocalyptic thought in there as well, because it does seem, if you interpret this, that this is signs of the end times as well. And so when people are like, you know, if you're religious and you turn to God to prayer to find this answer, those prayers aren't being answered. So you turn to, well, it can't be God that is doing this. It has to be some type of human made problem that's that's controlling this. So what you'll see in forums is someone might be talking about anti-lockdown discussions. And then that will be linked to, you know, just pushed a little bit to a conspiracy theory. And then, you know, they'll say, well, that might make sense. And then, you know, that envelope opens a little bit more. And then the next conspiracy theory that's linked comes in. And, you know, when you're using religious language or, you know, interpretations of politics, you can see that people <clears throat> start believing different things. And there are groups, extremist groups, like, um, I recently just wrote a thing about this that in the White Lives Matters group, so there were protests planned all across North America. And Toronto, where I am, was the only Canadian protest. And they openly in their group in Telegram said, we're not going to post any racist material. We're just going to talk about, you know, who has been wounded or who has been shot, who is white and stand up for their rights and stand up for their memory. And they were saying that they wanted to link to the anti-COVID protests that are happening here and the anti-lockdown protests. And they refer to people who are anti-lockdown or um, believe that COVID is a hoax. They refer to them as the normies. And so they were making like actual like oh, wow. outreach to these groups with the normies. But the thing that they were using, and I see this in other groups as well that are extremists, is that they don't actually put their racial or their conspiratorial ideas framed, they frame it within a political discourse. So it'll be a meme that, you know, like anti-lockdown, like they're trying to destroy the middle class. And so these ideas are actually pushed to something that you can understand, even if you're not a conspiracy theorist and that you can relate to. And so once you sort of start relating to that, the envelope starts widening more. And, you know, then all of a sudden these very racist tropes are coming in, you know, and they start blaming, you know, different ethnicities and, you know, that fear that you're feeling is articulated through another group and sort of othering those people and creating your sort of own enclave. So it's quite easy when they're using images and memes and tropes that are political in nature and not necessarily conspiratorial or racist in nature. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This thing of what was really interesting there is about using tropes or using imagery that you will identify with and and that's such a hook as well of course yeah. if you're identifying with these things the othering stops you know they mm -hmm. move from as we said in the beginning is you know from the tin hats to wait this is me you know and and yeah. i think that can be so powerful you were speaking a little bit as well just about the history and this difference between um sort of conspiracy theories with a doomsday element and the religious elements as well. And there does seem to be 
a bleeding over of that where, you know, yeah. when I think of conspiracy theories, I just often think about the religious, you know, the end times, mm -hmm. doomsday, apocalyptic, etc. But there also seems to be, well, not just now, but historically looking into your work a lot more about um, political and sort of this war against good and evil versus mm -hmm. necessarily the end times. I wonder if you can speak to a little bit of that. Well, one of the notions that they sort of continuously and historically have espoused is that this notion of being like a social hero. So if you're going to be a social hero, you're a member of the resistance in some way, shape or form, and that you're fighting for, you know, in many cases, God, country and family. Right. So right. there's notions of traditional gender roles and traditional ideas of what society should be. And. You know that if you do this, if you stand up and, and fight against whatever power is trying to destroy these ideas, that you're going to be ostracized, that, you know, you're not going to be accepted by the larger public. And this is one of the things that you sort of have to accept if you're going to fight against it. It's also a way to justify your belief system. You're, you know, I could say that you don't know the truth. You don't, you know, your eyes are closed. You're not awake or you're, you know red-pilled or black-pilled, you know, these ideas um, that you just don't understand what I know as the truth. And if you did, you would fight with me against this thing. So this idea that we're going to be in our own sort of group and we know who the others are. And now they might not necessarily be our enemy. They're just asleep. They just don't know the truth. And they're just following all these things. I mean, we see this with these ideas of sheeple and, yeah, and you know, the way that these things are articulated. And so, you know, like in the 60s and the 50s, it was the communists that were trying to make these things happen. So the communists were involved in the civil rights movement and that, you know, they were, you know, using people of color and African-Americans to fight back against society and create socialism and communism in the various countries where civil rights movements were happening. Here we see, you know, there are links to communism, obviously, because, you know, they blame China for these ideas that are happening. But at the same time, Antifa has risen up as being, you know, the new communism in the 2000s. And, you know, What's happening with Black Lives Matters or what happened on January 6th, these ideas are linked to Antifa is, you know, forcing or, you know, motivating these people to speak out for BLM because they're trying to bring communism or socialism or ultimate liberalism. So, you know, it's this idea of disaster. So, you know, yeah. in the 50s and 60s, we would see protests in the street. And people would be afraid, even if those protests weren't happening anywhere near you. You know, you would see buildings on fire. You would see, you know, people being, you know, with the hoses or being shot or fought fights. You know, that seems like chaos and it seems somewhat scary. And you have to understand why this is happening. And, you know, if you're separate from that movement, you think that society is so good. Like, it's not that bad. And see, we see the same things happening now. So one of the things that I show in my classrooms is that in the 50s, there was this ad that was placed and sent around amongst all of the conspiracy groups and the anti-communist groups where you could hire protesters who would go to an event for the civil rights movement, create chaos, and pretend that there was some type of major movement that was actually happening. And, you know, they were articulated as being communists. So 
you know, a few months ago, there was an ad almost verbatim, except for communists, it was Antifa. And that, you know, you could hire these Antifa protests to come to your town and cause chaos. And so we see, like, even in small towns, I don't know if you saw these memes on Facebook or on social media, but people were actually in their small towns standing around with their guns, ready to fight down BLM because BLM was coming to their little tiny pocket of the world. And when BLM didn't show up, they were like, we scared them. We, you know, we're the most powerful people. We stopped this movement. But there was never a movement. But that sort of specter of it happening in your neighborhood makes you react in a way that, you know, you understand the world as not being full of injustice for other groups. But you just it's not something that happens to you. I mean, it's our privilege, right? I mean, we don't understand those things. But it becomes a specter. And you don't want to think that society is injustice like that. And so that injustice comes back to you. So for conspiracy theories, if we ignore the salacious nature, we have to look at what the injustice is underneath. Like, what is this conspiracy theory answering? So is there in your mind, for some conspiracy theorists, that the injustice is that I feel encroached upon? I feel that, you know, our ideal society may not be ideal for everybody, but the way I see it, it is justice. And so these things happening are an attack on me and an attack on my lifestyle or, um, you know, they're attacking my religion. There's a sense of persecution that's attached to that. And, you know, that is consistent throughout history. If we look at the Illuminati, to we look at the insiders of the John Birch Society, or we look at Antifa right now and, you know, who are the New World Order, like the deep state. Yeah. It's a destruction of religion. There's ideas of taboo nature. So, you know, pedophilia is attached to it or human trafficking. You know, all of the very truly negative evil images that doesn't make this the kingdom of God in some way, shape or form on earth. And, you know, Jesus is not going to return because we're so evil. So we have to fight against that evil. And how we articulate that is usually through taboo topics, through injustice, you know, and people being manipulated. And as the resistance, you have to fight against that in even though you will be ostracized or attacked. And that's why, you know, you have these these groups of people who come together and, you know, they are one, they know the truth and they have to rise up and fight. So You know, you, it's like this ultimate confirmation bias. Where it sounds like it exists on the spectrum of either, okay, I need to protect myself and I need to have ultimate truth or knowledge, you know, to that other end of the spectrum of actually acting out against this perceived enemy. Your work speaks so much about just fear and morality and then how those two things kind of bleed into this. And, And it's so understandable from a psychological perspective, why these conspiracy theories are, are gripping people. And again, you're going out there looking for confirmation, whether it's, ah, oh, you see, they didn't turn up because they were scared. That's yeah. you going, ah, oh, you see, these things are real. So yeah. it's so dangerous. And um I just think psychologically. So some of your other work was speaking, you know, in talking about QAnon and things like that, you were speaking of this sort of um enemy quote-unquote of new world order the cabal things like that but i wanted to kind of go back in time to your your article (laughs) called fighting the system where you were looking at 
white supremacy in the 80s and how, you know, they sort of saw their the enemy, who they saw that as being, and specifically things like the Turner Diaries and um, the Order. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, my PhD work was on the John Birch Society and the role of religion within that group and apocalyptic thought. And one of the members of the John Birch Society, his name was Ravello Oliver, which is all of us backwards. <laughs> it was great. Um, he was um, on the speaker's board. He was on the National Council for the John Birch Society. And um, he articulated it as being religious because you had to you couldn't be an, uh, an atheist and be a member of the John Birch Society. And so he um, would speak out. And as he sort of kept doing all of these speakers bureau events, he started articulating more of like an anti-black and anti-Muslim um, speech when he was talking. And a lot of the membership were very angry and wanted him to be ejected. The John Birch Society had also written an anonymous book um, called The John Franklin Letters, which was a dystopian novel about um, the future if communists took over. And so this was a group of underground people who were battling against communism and trying to save America. And it was diaries that were, you know, letters written back to the family while this person was out fighting. So no one really knows who wrote that novel, but there's rumors that it was either Ravello Oliver or it was Robert Welsh, and um, the, the founder of the John Birch Society. And that novel, Ravello, gave that novel to William Pierce, who wrote The Turner Diaries. And it's very similar in nature with the idea of, you know, what is the battle? But the battle that he positioned, it obviously, was a race battle. And, you know, there's very similar tropes and ideas in it in that, you know, communism snuck in and, you know, took over and, you know, people sold themselves out to communism. They were sympathizers and there were these ideas. With the Turner Diaries, it was people selling out and that, you know, people of color were actually taking over the world and were in control and that, you know, white people are subservient or slaves to this. And so that novel inspired people. There was a group in there called The Order that were the resistance that started the race war, that started the battle against um, what was happening in society. And so people, there are three or four groups that actually took on that name as well as the order and wanted to start the race riots and start the race war. So they actually did some of the ideas that were in the Turner Diaries, um, Timothy McVeigh being one of the most obvious examples to this. But it motivated people and almost in a way gave them a blueprint on how to start the race war. And so these dystopian novels and these ideas of extremism, when people are feeling afraid or that they feel that, you know, they are superior because of the color of their skin, there are these mechanisms that create this social hero idea. So for the order, they were the heroes that were going to save America. They were going to stop this and, you know, start states that were specifically for people of color and start states that were specifically for white people. And, it's the motivation to make this happen. And they feel that, you know, regardless what happens to them, they're the heroes that are fighting this war and are saving God and country and family. They're saving, you know, themselves and saving how they see the world and what they understand the world to be. And they scapegoat other ethnicities to blame for their own, 
you know, whatever they feel their injustice is. You know, they could feel that they can't be successful because other groups get preferential treatment and that that is a sign that they're going to eventually be enslaved or the new world order is going to happen. So, you know, the way that we understand our own position in the world and who we blame for that position is important in the movement of these things, especially when you distrust your government and feel that the government is serving another group and isn't your voice. So it's how it's articulated. And then, you know, these novels can really push a person to to think about these things. So. So thinking that, you know, we have quite an international audience. So I wonder if you might just clarify um, the John Birch Society. Oh, sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> so the John Birch Society was a group that was founded in 1958 in America. And um, it was started by Robert Welsh. And they were an anti-communist group. And they tried to, they were actually very important in the nomination of um, Goldwater in the 1964 election. So they secured his nomination through their votes at the primary in California. And they were known as being conspiracy theorists. They, uh, Robert Welsh wrote and said that Eisenhower was a card-carrying communist. And, you know, they were very vocal in their belief that there was a group called the Insiders, which are very similar to the Illuminati, who controlled the American political system. So they selected who the nominees were for both the Republican and Democratic Party, and that their end goal was to bring communism to America and create a new world order. So one of the things that I think most people can relate to, because we all talk about this wherever we are in the world, um, America and the war on Christmas. That actually was started by the John Birch Society. So in 1958, they had sent out um, a memo and a flyer to their membership and said that the United Nations was trying to start a new world order and take Christ out of Christmas. So at the stores, at the department stores, instead of having Christmas decorations or Christmas balls on the tree, they were going to have one world, new world order and UN insignia Christmas balls on the trees. And they asked all of their members to write the department stores and say, do not put the UN balls up. You know, the sign was if there was an X in Christmas, they were taking Christ out of Christmas. The stores weren't doing this. Like it wasn't anything the stores were going to do. And predominantly a lot of the women who were involved in the John Birch Society wrote to department stores like Macy's and said, I have a credit card with you. I will not shop if you do this with the UN Christmas balls. Of course, it didn't happen. And they declared we won. And there was a huge writing letter, uh, letter writing um, programs where it was like, don't let them X Christ out of Christmas. And so that was 1958. And here we are in, you know, 2021. Last year, Donald Trump announced, I put, we're allowed to say Merry Christmas again. There was never really a battle for this. And, you know, that's how that conspiracy theory continued to the state. So they had an impact and a lot of. So hopefully when my book is published, <laughs> um, we'll see that the John Birch Society actually members like Tim LaHaye was involved in the John Birch Society. He spoke about religion for them, was on their videos. He in one of his books wrote that he shared Christ with Robert Welsh before he died and in one of his books, he talks about how he's been a studier of the Illuminati. 
And so Tim LaHaye obviously was involved in the moral majority. And some of the families that were funders of the John Birch Society were also backers of the moral majority. And Tim LaHaye also started um, the Council for National Policy, which still exists. It's a secret organization, but um, the Southern Poverty Law Center has gotten their membership list and it has Breitbart in it. You know, it has um, the NRA and now Republican presidential nominees or people hoping to become the nominee actually go and speak to the Council for National Policy and report, you know, and, and they will put their support behind them. So if we think about that group putting support behind a nominee, you know, if the NRA is sending out to their membership that, you know, Nicholas is a great no- nominee for president because he supports Second Amendment. At the same time, the religious like groups that belong to it, like the Family Council belongs to um, the CMP. They write out religious wise that, you know, Nicholas is going to support anti-abortion or they're going to support pro-family and traditional role models. And then, you know, if Breitbart is a part of it, they can link conspiracy theories and, you know, do their reporting. So if you are someone who's looking at media, you have the NRA saying one thing through a lens of Second Amendment. You have a religious group that you belong to saying the same thing, but through a religious lens. Mm. And then you have, you know, the alternative media saying it through another lens. So you have this cohesive message that's being sent through all of your belief systems to support someone. So. From the John Birch Society, the impact has come to the point with the CMP. So, and if you look at scholarship for the John Birch Society, they're often dismissed as, you know, I've actually seen like scholarship this as they're kooks or tin hat wearing, or we shouldn't pay attention to them. But the impact that they've had, even to this point, is very significant. That is so powerful, thinking a little bit about, as you said, all those channels. If all those channels are coming through, you know, people who have, who are just seeking some sort of answers can so easily slip down something. And, and thinking again about going back to the, the order that you spoke about, I wanted to think a little bit about, you know, you spoke about their supremacy ideas, you know, this idea that they are fighting the good fight. And, and you spoke in your work a little bit about this two seed theory. And I wanted to maybe explore the role of religion on, and how it's maybe used to support or to facilitate these sort of supremacist ideas. Well, in a lot of um, supremacist groups, I mean, there's different various religions that are attached. There's Odinism, but it usually comes back to the idea of um, Noah's sons and, you know, how it was separated. And, you know, Ham was, you know, the dark one that, you know, is the evil tribe. And so they link those ideas. There's British Israeli Israelism that has taken hold in America as well, that, you know, this lost tribe, they are the ones that have to go forth. And so they push these narratives that, you know, they are the chosen that, you know, God has said that this group or this ethnicity is the most powerful. And um, with white supremacists, a lot of them do not believe that it is um, Judaism that is the chosen people, that it is them that is the chosen person. So what we can see with a lot of these groups is that they believe that they are on the side of the eternal, mm-hmm. that they are you know, fulfilling what God wants for us. And by battling for these things, they're, you know, either creating a, an ability for the rapture to happen, an ability for Jesus to return because they've made 
the kingdom of God on earth and it's prepared. Um, there's a lot of interpretation of what's happening in the news as symbols of either the return of Christ or, you know, in book of revelation of what's happening. And so they use these things to motivate themselves and to articulate their ideas to other people. So the use of religious language is exceptionally important. I mean, we may not all understand the meaning of the word the same way. We, you know, but we have an understanding of that word and it can be motivating to us. And that is one of the powerful things that groups like this use is this notion of I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing God's work in some ways, you know, and and attaching, you know, ideas of freedom or ideas of creating the kingdom of God is really important in these movements. And that, you know, some of the groups believe that, you know, unless we separate by race, then Jesus can't come back or the rapture won't happen. Or unless we articulate it in a different way or understand society and make it, you know, where there are no LGBTQ to SA groups where, you know, it has to be traditionalism as they articulate it. But the thing is, is that if you and I were in one of these groups, you may understand what needs to happen for the kingdom to God differently than how I understand it, but we're both motivated. One of the things that you can see is that it's not necessarily about dogma or denomination. It's about values. So you can see that the motivation in the social movement is how do we understand morality and how do we understand values? And, you know, it has nothing to do with our dogma, but we all understand morality and values. And so that's what they use. So we can see that with um, culture war issues, you know, when it's articulated in society, you know, every group or religious denomination has those core tenets. And so people use that as motivation in many of these groups. And how common is that idea at the moment, you know, this fight for, I I realize definitely the fight for morality, good and evil, you know, as sort of good being, if you take it from the QAnon perspective, you know, people who aren't wearing masks, et cetera, bad being the new world order cabal, but how prevalent is the sort of religious aspect within that, you know, currently? It's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the COVID, um, they're actually creating, I have this, I'll have to send you the meme when this is over, but someone, some group is in North America right now creating little cards that have like a cross on it that says that I'm vaccinated by God's love. And so it's their idea of what the passport is, that God is saving you and giving you your breath. That's an important aspect. All of the groups that I look at see this as persecution of their religious faith and the destruction of Christianity in North America. So um, it just one of the big ones that's happening now, because at the end of QAnon, you know, when Donald Trump left, there's still a core group of people that believe that Joe Biden, you know, is not the president, Donald Trump. So they believe that Donald Trump signed something to um, eliminate the corporation of America and return to the republic. And so Joe Biden is not the real president because America as a corporation does not exist. And Donald Trump will be inaugurated as the 19th president before it became a corporation and was a republic. So, but they also, you know, refer to Donald Trump as, you know, God's voice in the White House, you know, God's representation. 
So, you know, he's bringing back morality. He's bringing back these ideas. And, you know, we're at this moment right now where it's a battle between good and evil, just politically. But, you know, outside of that, they also believe in something that all of the groups are talking about now is something called the blue beam. And the blue beam was something that actually originated here in Canada, in Montreal in the 90s. A reporter said that he had gotten information from politicians and from international journalists about a new world order and what their plan was. And what their plan was, was to slowly destroy religion. And once there's sort of like this, there is going to be an epidemic, which makes this, you know, even more realistic because of where we are in the world right now. And with that epidemic and pandemic, people would be locked in their homes. They would be, you know, not working and that the government would control us. But the government were slaves to the Antichrist and the Antichrist needs to take his throne as the world leader of the new world order. So the blue beam is actually a hologram that is going to be put into the sky around the world. And all of the prophets and all of the gods will appear, talk about their faith and say, you guys interpreted this wrong. This is not what we meant. But now this person fully understands what we articulated in our religion and follow him. And that would be following the Antichrist. And so what they're saying is that because people can't go to churches because of isolation, that that's part of the destruction of Christianity or the destruction of everyone's religion. And that, you know, when you see holograms on TV or you see holograms somewhere at a concert, it's an example. So what you'll see is that in the groups, people will be like, that's the beam. That didn't really happen. It's a beam. And they're starting the holograms. You know, the motion is in order. It's happening. So this idea of religion is so inherent in so many of the conspiracy theories. I mean, this one, the blue beam, is interesting mm. to me because of pluralism that every religion is shown. Yeah. But I would love to look at your internet history one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little quirky. <laughs> so, so what happens when these, you know, just sort of ending a little bit thinking about the confirmation bias that we were talking about and, you know, this Donald Trump was the savior or meant to be the savior. You were speaking a little bit about, you know, he was going to end the corporation. Mm-hmm. And now that's not happened. You know, some of your work speaks about the televangelists who were really um supporting Trump and saying, okay, this is the sort of, you know, he's God's warrior. So mm-hmm. what happens in the face of that? Do people just move to something like the blue beam when that doesn't happen? Or how does it? Well, right now it's a little you know, chaotic in the conspiracy world. There are a lot of people who still believe that Donald Trump is going to come back into power. Um, what's happening with the recounts in Arizona, and today they said that they're going to start one in New Hampshire as well, that, you know, there is hope that it's going to come out as truth that, you know, there were fake ballots, that, you know, all of these things happened. Like in Arizona, they think that there's bamboo in the paper that shows that it came from China, and that's what they're looking for. I there's this consistent narrative that they want to prove this to be true. And because it keeps being articulated as, you know, we don't believe that Joe Biden is truly president. Like the GOP, you know, even taking out Liz Cheney from her position mm-hmm. is still supporting this notion. So they're sort of waiting for some heroic moment. And, you know, they're like, still believe, still hold on. 
At the same time, other people are like, okay, well, that didn't work. The deep state did not, you know, has won. So it's kind of like, you know, if someone says the world is going to end on this day and it doesn't happen, there comes up another idea of why that didn't happen, right? And so you still believe. And there's always an excuse why it didn't happen. And so this is the same thing that's happening with QAnon. There's faith. And then, you know, there's something that has stopped it, like, you know, the Democrats or the communists or Antifa stopped this or the deep state stopped it from happening. But there is QAnon is unique in the fact that usually with a conspiracy, someone interprets that and shows here are all of my you know resources and references to prove this conspiracy theory. With QAnon, it's up to each person to understand the crumbs that are being left. So that's articulated through your own lens and understanding of the world. And so, you know, people come together and see it in different ways, but there are certain tropes of, you know, not having a voice and distrust and the deep state and, you know, human trafficking, you know, all of these ideas of drinking children's blood. And, you know, these things seem to be consistent, which are attached in a lot of ways to how they determine or define Satanism. And so some people are still holding on. Other people are moving to Bluebeam or another conspiracy called Zimbabwe. They're moving towards that. But there's also people who are like, I don't believe in QAnon anymore. And they're sort of in something that are similar to support groups on Reddit and on Facebook, where they go in and say, I don't believe anymore. And, you know, I just need support and I can't believe this happened. But the thing is, is that there isn't anybody in there who actually has, you know, psychology or right. you know mental health or anything. So many of these people are there. There's already a sense of distrust. They don't believe what's happening. They're scared. And so it's ripe for new conspiracy theories to be introduced and new ideas of extremism when it comes to, you know, sort of like white nationalism and stuff like that, where now these people are focused in one group together and are almost prey to these things where all these new ideas can come together. So, you know, one just leads into the other, but there still is a foundation of that QAnon ideas there. That's a really scary thought. Um, and do you think that, well, it seems to me, and just from my perspective, it seems like conspiracy theories are so much more prevalent right now than, than I remember them ever being. Um, I suppose besides the Y2K, it seems yeah. like just a sign of the times right now. Do you think that this will taper off hopefully when things start to get back to normal or? Do I don't think? know. I mean, I think that um, we're at a really sort of interesting point in time. I mean, conspiracy has always existed. And, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was through newsletters and cassette tapes and, you know, these ideas and mm. films in some cases were, were spread about. But here, because of the Internet, it's so much easier to spread these ideas. But, you know, for decades and decades, there has been a movement for distrust in mainstream media. There's been a movement for distrust in the government. And so, you know, that has often been dismissed by media and dismissed by scholarship and having conversations even about it, you know. Um, now it's in the media consistently. So what we saw with when Parlay went down, a lot of people were like, oh, what's Parlay? And went there, it went down. And where they went to was Telegram. And so now the groups in telegrams are much larger than it used to be. And, you know, there's websites where you can go and see videos where when everyone's kicked off of YouTube, you know, you can go to these different things. There's just no sort of stopping these ideas. And, you know, there isn't. um, When you think about like 
the media that's, you know, sending out disinformation or spreading conspiracy theories, there's really no regulation to that, right? So that is going to continue. So, you know, possibly when people get back to work and the pandemic is over and people start engaging with social groups again, it might lessen a little bit, but those ideas of distrust are not going to simply go away. Those ideas of distrusting the media, our government are not going to go away. And, you know, it is something that, you know, the government and media and all of us have to articulate. I mean, we have to be out there in our public intellectualism talking about these things and not dismissing people, but engaging and trying to understand, you know, and the government has to look at how do we fight disinformation? How do we regulate, you know, the idea of free speech or, you know, how do we regulate these ideas and, you know, try to curb some of this disinformation that's being spread out? I think this is a moment in time for us as a global society to try and understand not only, you know, the damage that this can do, but how we can slow it down, but also how we can discuss some of these injustices and deal with the situations. I couldn't agree more. I, I don't think further othering is the solution. No. You know? <laughs> no. Carmen, thank you so much. This has been really, really entertaining. I've got some more things to Google, <laughs> some more wormholes to go down. Um, but I just wanted to end and, and maybe ask you, what are you working on at the moment? What should our listeners be looking out for? Oh, I'm working on a lot of different things right now. Right now I'm looking at um, extremism um, and how it's developing through um, through social media and disinformation. I'm working on that. I'm working on something for the Blue Beam, of course, because I'm absolutely fascinated with the Blue Beam. I'm trying to work on my French right now so I can get the original translation. Yeah. And um, I'm also looking at um, ideas of how COVID has um, pushed disinformation and pushed extremism and how that has led to some type of violence. I think that we're really looking at the health matters of it, which we should, but I think that, you know, we need to expand the ideas of mental health and look at what are the moral damage that has been done, like for healthcare workers who are on their Facebook and, you know, their uncle is talking about how this is all a hoax and the Mm. rooms are empty. You know, what are the moral impact of this on people who are working in, in healthcare? So, Brilliant. That sounds fascinating, and and I'll certainly look out for it. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maxine, for this great interview, and thanks especially to Dr. Carmen Celestini for joining us today. This has been a really fascinating conversation about what is a very relevant and timely issue and topic in the study of religion. So I hope that you, our listeners, have also thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas and questions. So if you want to continue this conversation, please head over to social media and find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to share your thoughts about this interview. You can also head to our website at www.religiousstudiesproject.com to learn more about this episode and find a transcript of the episode posted there alongside the podcast. You know, now that we have reached this monumental 1 million downloads milestone here at the Religious Studies Project, we are just so extraordinarily grateful for all of our listeners, our contributors, 
our guests over the years. Uh, it's been an amazing 10 seasons so far, and it's kind of mind-blowing that we are now in our 11th season of this podcast. It's just, it's fantastic. So thank you to everybody who has been supporting us along the way. As you know, we want to make sure that this is a free resource for students and scholars alike. And we hope that these are podcasts and conversations that you can bring into the classroom to discuss with your students. You can sign up for a monthly donation at patreon.com slash project RS, where you can donate as little as $1 per month, or you can give us a one-time donation at PayPal. Also, if you are shopping on Amazon for books or gadgets or cleaning supplies or pet toys, please be sure to use our Amazon affiliate links that you can find on our website. This won't change the price of the item for you, but a small portion of that purchase will be donated to us. So please save that link in your browser and use that when you go to shop online. And as a final plug again, I know we've mentioned this before, but as a reminder, the Religious Studies Project is now on Instagram and you can find us at project underscore rs underscore. So please head over to Instagram and follow us there as well. And we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, I guess all that's left to say is thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore, podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk, and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, and all other portals. Thanks for listening.